This is a Retail Insider Podcast. You're listening to a special edition. Hello, everyone. This is Craig Patterson. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Retail Insider, and this is a special edition of the Retail Insider Podcast. We're here today with Carl Boutet. He's a retail expert and the Chief Strategist of Studio RX based in Montreal. Welcome, Carl. Hey, Greg. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Talk a little bit today about retail of COVID-19. It's something that uh, we've certainly been discussing uh, very regularly <laughs> lately, unfortunately. Um, and uh, let's just get right into it. Uh, where were we in Canada in terms of retail uh, before this all happened? Uh, and uh, what are we seeing now? Well, listen, we were like much of the world. We were very already quite polarized. You know, the, the winners and losers were sort of pulling further and further apart from each other. Um, pre-COVID, so we were, you know, we were. It was already a pretty um, fragile state of affairs for a lot, although some were clearly, uh, you know, really pulling ahead. And uh, now, as we get into, you know, and now we're a month, you know, um, between a month and six weeks, depending where you are in the country, into into the crisis. Uh, you know that I think that polarization is just further uh, accentuated itself. Where, although maybe some new categories that we didn't see as necessary as being winners before, uh, you're thinking of as essential goods mainly, uh, have really benefited. And obviously, all the disc, you know discretionary categories. I mean, we no need to. I think I'm sure you've talked at length about how those have uh, suffered through this. But it's interesting now to start seeing, uh, you know, these four to six weeks have given a lot of um, have given a lot of time to accelerate uh you know a lot of the initiatives that retailers have were thinking about doing anyways and and now seeing how those manifest into the market especially as hopefully in in coming weeks and months we start seeing opportunities for some commercial activity to reopen um you know how they're going to adapt to that is going to be quite fascinating yeah yeah um, in terms of the new normal, um, what do you think this is going to look like? Uh, it's a bit of a crystal ball uh, question, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and it's I think it's it's like any trend line. It's 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 just an extend you know an extension of of what we're seeing. So uh, the new normal is nothing but there's nothing normal about it. I guess is is what we're going to see in the short term. Um, where we're you know, where it's getting a little more confusing to figure out is is really how long we're going to be stuck in this because I think that's the longer we're stuck in this, the more the behaviors are impacted and changed. So if we were to come out of this, let's say optimistic, very optimistically early May, uh, you know, I don't, you know, I think we would see some returns to some previous uh, behaviors a little more quickly. If we're still, you know, in, in mostly lockdown by the end of summer, then, then we're still, then you're going to see much more drastic changes in consumer behavior and and those are sort of the natural things that we're already seeing around you know buying online and, and and migrating especially essential goods to to online purchasing which wasn't the case before and that's what we saw in asia as well too so it was um you know we we we, we they even in markets that had high e-commerce penetration uh, like china or even the uk we're just seeing that accelerate right now in in these categories which weren't typically very uh um digital centric. So for think, think about grocery, especially uh, how that's changing right now at a really frantic pace. And if we had a second wave of this pandemic, uh, um, I'm wondering how that, how, how that would look. So each wave, I think there's going to be, you know, several waves of, of this, and if not this pandemic, other, other, you know, sort of, you know, everybody's sort of preparing us for these, uh, these, not these pandemics, sorry, but these different crises, they're going to keep hitting us, be, be it weather related and, and other 
other factors that keep seem to be increasing in, in, in intensity and shortening in, in, in time between them happening. So I, I'm, I think this one really, why this one is, is, is so important to us is how it, uh, it's really, you know, building, helping us build resilience and hopefully how we, uh, from our supply chain to our logistics, to the way we, we, we structure our organizations to adapt. So this one's going to, you know, obviously going to hurt a lot more than probably the ones that are going to come, they're going to come after it. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, if we look at, we keep sort of reverting back to China and, and markets like South Korea and Singapore that we keep looking at and saying, well, why is it not so bad? Why, why are they managing this so much better than we are? Well, one of the main reasons is SARS hit them really, really hard in 2003. And we forget that Alibaba was pretty much a, a, a byproduct. You know, the success of and the growth of Alibaba was basically a byproduct of SARS. So they really sort of accelerated their transformation into towards digital. Why they're, you know, depending on the categories between 30 and 50 percent um, online purchasing in, in China, which, you know, we're in the 10 to 15 to 20 percent, depending on the categories here. So this is our sort of our accelerator right now. I, I often frame this uh, period. I say, you know, we went through the in late 20s, early 30s, the Great Depression. Uh, the Lehman Brothers crisis in 2008 provoked a great recession. And now uh, COVID-19 is provoking the great acceleration. And, and, and this is really how quickly, uh, you know, retailers are adapting. I'm on calls, I'm sure like you, a couple of times a day where retailers are saying, well, this thing we were thinking about doing two, three years from now, we're, we're trying to get it on, online. We're trying to get it going now. You know, it's, it's become a top priority, which for me is at least encouraging that that's going to be some of this, the silver lining of all this is things that retailers had to do anyways and should have done probably even before this. It's just going to make them uh, adopt it that much more quickly. That is really, really interesting. In terms of, say, physical retail, um, do you think that we'll be seeing substantial changes? Uh, you know, say, for example, a small store that uh, might be crowded if, say, two people are in it. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, in terms of the new normal. Right. Well, listen, you know, the social distancing piece is, is critical. I mean, I have a, uh, a pharmacy near where I live where they have a five person capacity. And it's still probably, a, you know, I would say an 800 square foot store. It's a fair size store. So now we have five people in there going to get their prescriptions or there's a uh, Canada Post, you know, desks there. There's And they have the regular, you know, the rest of it as well. Um, you, it, you know, five people is not a lot of people in a, in a space like that. They probably has at least a dozen employees, to, you know, running between the pharmacy and everything else. So how that impacts their business model and their metrics. And, and you know, they're obviously trying to cater for um, click and collect a lot more and even delivery. So how they're, they're hybridizing their model to, to drive revenue from different sources, not just the physical store that obviously now is, is down considerably, even for a pharmacy, which you would think is, is you know, is, doesn't get much more essential uh, than that. But they, uh, but yeah, so the new normal, again, there's gonna be periods, uh, you know, ebbs and flows of the new normal and, or, or, or as some are putting it, the, uh, the dance and the hammer, uh, periods, you know, where, where maybe the five, they'll be go up to 10, they'll allow it to be 15, maybe no more restrictions on people in the space. And then they're going to clamp back down to five. But now the next time they clamp that back down to five, they know how to go about it. They already have a lot of the precautions in place and they, and they can switch it on and off more easily. So it'll be really interesting. And, and, you know, I'm more concerned with space, you know, like hospitality really, I think is really more where we're going to see the impact of, of what, you know, you're calling the new normal. Uh, that's where I, I'm much more concerned than, say, traditional retail, which I think even places like Costco and whatever are doing a pretty good job of managing the social distance uh, aspect. 
Yeah, in terms like in hospitality, we include restaurants in that. So yeah. I, yeah. I'm trying to picture. I mean, I think in China there someone had a photo of a restaurant that they put you know almost like plexiglass dividers uh, for yeah. people to dine, which is quite interesting. Uh, do you have any sort of vision what that might look like here? Yeah, I, I mean, I have a good friend in uh, in Italy, uh, in northern Italy, that runs uh, has a business, you know has a consulting service focused on 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 food service and was asking did it, did a poll around that for his clients and would you guys be comfortable and even showing it on beaches, like, you know, like, if you think about those sort of beach areas that are, that are catered by the, you know, for food and all that, like, would you be comfortable being on a beach with a big plexiglass between you and the next person? Or would you be comfortable in a restaurant with a big, you know, or, 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 and, and so, yeah, the Chinese reference, I haven't seen so much of that, quite honestly. And it's the category, even in China, as they get quote unquote back to business and we can discuss more what that looks like it's still the category that's the most the hardest hits because people even though they're allowed to technically go back into the restaurant and eat they just they don't they're they're not there yet they're psyche there's still too much concern around um yeah uh, contagion that they're either they're doing pickup possibly but very few are actually sitting and eating and eating in the restaurant even even with some of these plexiglass things going on yeah, yeah. And I'm just thinking about shopping centers generally. Um, I mean, everything, you know, that I've been talking about, you know, the theory's almost out the window. I mean, we're saying add, you know, food and entertainment, uh, you know, put food halls into uh, your shopping center. I mean, uh, I think that we're going to see quite, you know, a, a shift. Um, I, I don't even know how it's going to look. I mean, think about Cineplex. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these are so, so... You know, any any environment that that thrives on density of people, and unfortunately, commercial centers, you know, shopping centers, large commercial real estate projects uh, are all about per square foot performance. So the business model is probably going to have to change a bit, or at least take other elements into consideration, and 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 maybe you see them more on the on the logistics side. Because the the one thing commercial, you know, good commercial centers have going for them is location. They tend to be well located, centrally located, or um, maybe less so the power centers, but even still. So how can they, how can they leverage their locations beyond just being an attraction uh, for, uh, for people? And I'm doing a lot, I'm doing a lot of thinking with this. I'm working with a group as well that we're putting together like a think tank to sort of sort this out and try to not figure, you know, from different angles, how do we, how do we look at this? Because to your point, I mean, God, I feel by groups like Evanouille Cambridge here in Montreal that just did this massive $250 million redevelopment of the Eaton Center downtown with Time Out Market. You know, that was a massive investment to, uh, to and now it's, it's you know, it's going to be a while. Thankfully, you know, they have long horizons and we'll see how they evolve. Projects like Royal Mount uh, as well. Uh, even, I don't know if you saw the announcement, American Dream saying they're going from 50 to 70%. Uh, entertainment, you know, they're moving away that much more away from retail, looking at 70% of, of, of other sort of, uh, so maybe services are going to come back into there. But to your point, what is a Cineplex, which we were, we were hoping the new Cineplex concepts were going to drive a lot of traffic into these areas. What are gyms and all these health, you know, because we're going to be much more health centric. So <clears throat> a lot, a lot of questions, but I, I remain confident. I mean, we're, we're, we're conditioned as humans to interact. So at some point we're going to want to be together somewhere again. Uh, it's going to take a little while. We're going to, you know, there's going to be a lot more measures. Uh, we can talk about that as well. How, why again, Asia is ahead of us and that, cause they're, they're, you know, they were much better prepared and, and their societies are much more open to some of these measures mm -hmm. uh, that we, you know, we're not quite there yet, but, 
So there'll be measures. I mean, even going into a shopping center in China, which is a lot more quiet, or in Singapore, or in, in, in Seoul, your temperature is being taken before you walk into the mall, mm-hmm. right? You know, we're, not, we're, we're nowhere near that right now. You know, um, and then same thing with the, you know, the apps and everything that's tracking who you've been in contact with, the contact tracing and all that stuff that we hear, keep on hearing about. Like, we're trying to figure it out. We're trying to do it in a way that's respectful of privacy at the same time gives the information that the, the health authorities need to track this. But it's going to be, we still got a slog ahead of us. Yeah, yeah. And um, the anchors of the departments, or sorry, the anchors of the shopping centers being the department stores. Oh, uh, I mean, we don't really have many of them left. I mean, it really is kind of the Hudson Bay Company in Canada. We've got, you know, a large format fashion retailers like Nordstrom and, you know, Holt Renfrew, which is kind of a gigantic concession-based specialty retailer. But, you know, yeah. the size of a department store, you know, a lot of them over 130,000 square feet. Um, what do you think about the future of the uh, department store? Well, I don't know if you saw the New York Times article yesterday that came out uh, in, in they were they were quoting some uh, large, uh, uh, like, uh, um, large bank uh, studies and their department stores, unfortunately, tend to be the ones that are the most over leveraged. And they, uh, obviously, that's HPC's uh, case. So that makes them the most vulnerable right now, because the reason why you know, Neiman was in trouble before this all started, we know we know that it's not because of COVID that they had to declare bank- bankruptcy was more just accelerated. Once again, I keep on coming back to this acceleration. It just accelerated the inevitable because right now nobody's extending credit. Why are they not extending credit? They don't know what terms to extend credit at because they have no idea where interest rates are going right now. Money is really cheap. So access to it today is still quite easy in terms of short term uh, requirements, but longer term requirements like department stores will need. So there's going to be a massive shakeup. Um, but that said, so as much as the footprints of those anchors is probably a thing of the past, the brands are, can still be, you know, I, I, I could see great things for HBC in terms of a brand. If somebody wants to take that brand and bring it back to its sort of Canadiana, you know, roots and do all sorts of fun things with the brand, but the space itself, that's, that's a much bigger challenge. And I think we'll see, you know, we'll see all these projects. And we already started seeing these converting, you know, here in Montreal, we have, um, uh, Fairview Point Claire that Oxford uh, owns that was going to be they, they've been talking about turning it into a community based shopping area you know integrating more uh, uh, you know condos and apartments in, in directly into the space making it more of a community driven environment so with with office space and and residential and, and sort of mixed use is really where everybody's going which is smart because it's more resilient more the more sort of um, business models you have intertwining between each other, the less chance that the whole thing implodes if, if one part of the segment really goes goes off. Oh, that makes sense. Oh, that's interesting. And uh, we were, you know, we we're talking about experiential retail. Actually, you and I were discussing a while ago. You were in Mexico. Oh, was that a couple of years ago yeah. now, Mexico City? Uh, yeah, it was 2018. Oh, it was a while ago. Yeah, because um, you toured El Palacio de Hierro. Uh, I probably did not yeah. pronounce that right, but uh, they have a spectacular store in Polanco. Um, and then, yeah. again, maybe I didn't yeah. pronounce that right. I don't know. I don't speak any Spanish. No, no, you got it. You're doing oh, okay. okay. <laughs> but, um, I mean, you know, I've seen it. It's funny. On Google Street View, you can walk through that store. And yeah. I was just blown away. I mean, we do not have a store like that in Canada. Right. And it's funny, I was actually just not too long ago talking to a big developer who was sort of rethinking the model and that, that exact um, project came up because we were, I was saying as well how impressed I was with it. And what I could sort of interpret was also the way that it's um, broken up is different in the sense that the brands have a lot more ownership of the space. 
So they're they're like concessions, but they're sort of concessions on steroids, where they're there's sort of a minor, a smaller luxury mall if you want, but it's owned pretty much by one or two people, and they they sort of activate it. Um, so it's ironic because it's, it's it's a bit like the old the original original department store model, kind of a return to that where the brands are owned by the mall owner too, mm. you know, and sort of like the old Selfridges, like what started Selfridges out, and, and, and even Macy's at some point. Um, so yeah, there's, there, I think you're going to see more of that where there's really more vertical integration where the brand is going to own the, probably the property outright. Even, even if it's a large property like Palacio de Haro could be, the brands will sort of like a group, you could think of a group like LVMH, you know, owning, owning a property like that. And we're probably not too far from that here at the Royal Mount project, which, you know, the, the main investor into that is, is the real estate arm, investment arm of, of LVMH. So you know, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, we'll see. I mean, everybody is asking the same questions, and nobody's sure of the answer. But there's going to be different. There's going to be different manifestations. But I think there's going to, for this sort of new department store slash mall business model to work, it's going to have to. It's going to have to be more vertical integration so that the margin gets spread out differently than it is right now. And 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 the landlords are going to have to be a lot more involved and we already saw that as well you know back to the project with like eaton center and, and timeout you know the the, the the owners can't be passive about this anymore and say oh you know we're just here to collect our rent we build you a nice pretty building and a good location it's well lit it's well you know well it's in the, you know and it has some nice little attributes to it and then you drive your it's your business to drive we got nothing to do with it i think those days are going to be less and less they're going to everybody there's going to be more and more partnership between the building owner and, and and the business operator to make sure that everybody's getting what they need to make it work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to drive traffic into the shopping center. Uh, I've heard the same thing right. where, you know, shopping center landlords, you know, presented the space and it was up to the retailers to do the promotion for the most part. I mean, you know, certainly we've got some great marketing from from shopping centers. Like yeah, that. yeah. And, I, and and listen, I mean, we're, we, you know, I, I'm, I've been advocating a lot for, you know, we need some sort of rent abatement right now to help the, to help the businesses through this crisis, and I'm I'm always really sad when I'm speaking, especially to smaller retailers who are not necessarily with the big, uh, you know, not renting necessarily from the big uh, malls or whatever, who, who are more structured for this, but who are not like where the the, the owner is saying, "Hey, this is your problem; it's not mine," sort of thing. Which obviously it isn't; it's everybody's problem. If they're left, if the retailer can't pay rent because their revenue is down, you know, ninety or a hundred percent. Um, you know, and that there's no, obviously no traffic going into the store. So there's, there's, so there is the mall owner or the building owner has a, a, a clear responsibility there. But I'm also feeling that sometimes the retailers are trying to get everybody else to pay for this too. And they have to take some accountability. I'll give you an example. I have a, you know, a local restaurant here that, uh, chain and, uh, they haven't been open, you know, and they're like, they just announced, okay, we're going to start doing drive through They never had drive through before. Well, I could see the, you know, the, the landlord saying, listen, I'm happy to give you a break here. Like, I know this is tough on all of us, and, and, but I still have costs. I'm not going to charge you 100%, but you got you to make an effort to try to find ways to make money on your end, too. You know, it's not just all, you know, me to give you a 100% break on everything or the government to pay for everything. You need to step up and try to find new ways to drive revenue. Your kitchen is still good back there, and you have a door on the side. Why aren't you at least doing that? Or what's, what's, what are you doing online to try to drive people? You know, like there, there has to be some shared responsibility, I guess, is what I'm getting at. So I think most are, 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 you know, are good at that. Most businesses, entrepreneurs are, 
that's they're, they're they're usually you know looking for always looking for new ways to make money but there's still some out there where it's like oh well you know it's covid what are you going to do there's nothing we can do we're just going to sit back and wait for this to pass and when things are back to normal which you obviously said earlier is not you know there's no there's what is back to normal even going to look like mm-hmm. we'll get back on, on our but in the meantime business is closed and don't expect any money from us so I think everybody's got a, a responsibility in this to step up, look at their business models and, and, and make sure, because money's still being spent, not as much as it was, but it's still being spent. So the retailers need, need, to, need to come up with their own ways to, uh, to you know, address this sort of new market dynamic. Yeah. And looking towards, I guess, the future, um, you know, I think some retail, well, we know that some retailers will never reopen their stores. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. um, do you have any sort yeah. of prediction about what sort of a how this might look in terms of number of, of retailers that may go under as yeah, well as so, sort of a timeline? So you're probably familiar, like I am. So there's that great study every year that comes out from Business of Fashion with uh, McKinsey. They do like sort of the, the yearly report, and they sort of you know in one chart I always enjoy looking at, and although it, it scares me every time, is how a hundred for 2018, which was the 2019 report on 2018 numbers, which are obviously good economic conditions and some of the best known, 177% of the uh, profit was generated by the top 20% of the brands. Mm. Meaning that the, and the bottom 20% of the brands was wiping out that 77% because at 177%, you understand that just, you know, they're, they're over indexing and then there's somebody wiping that out. So the bottom 20% is losing so much money that they're wiping out that, that ex, ex, excess 77%. And then you have this 20 to 60%. So, uh, sorry, 20 day, you have 60% the middle of, of this that are just barely break even actually maybe tech, tech, a little negative, but let's just call it break even, uh, uh, for argument's sake. So the bottom 20%, they're gone. They're gone or they come back because they get reacquired by Neiman's gets acquired by Saks and Saks decides to try to keep Neiman, the Neiman brand alive, for instance, or they get bought, you know, different. So there are some of that bottom 20, I say wipe out. It just means totally restructured financially. The top 20% we're not going to worry about because those are the Nikes, the Lululemons, uh, you know, the ones that are committed to paying their employees. Patagonia is all the way, you know, as long as it's lost, we're going to pay everybody. And we got tons of cash. So, they're actually going to benefit from this because they're going to come out looking good because they took good care of their people and they're probably going to acquire some of those bottom 20% that are going to be really good deals for them to pick up. Um, where it gets a little shadier is that, is that middle that was just barely breaking even in good in the best of times. That's not to say they're all going to get wiped out because there's some in there that are stepping up and, and are finding new ways of, of reaching their customers and using this as a way again to, coming back to it, accelerate the changes they were looking to make anyways. So they're, you know, over investing in, 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 in fulfillment and, and coming up with that, you know, that great sort of, uh, uh, you know, curbside pickup idea. I, we have a Chocolat Favori here in Quebec that, you know, Easter is one of their biggest periods. So they came up with a trunk delivery system, you know, into your trunk where they identified your car as you were pulling up and they knew they had your order ready. And, you know, so like, that's really, you know, that's a good, perfect example of somebody that, didn't just waste, sit back during a crisis. I guess nothing I can do. They really stepped up and their business is, is, you know, doing okay because of it. Unfortunately, nobody's doing great in this environment. Let's be honest. I mean, nobody apart from maybe some grocers, but uh, so back to that, why that's 60% in your question about the numbers. So how is that 60% going to split up and down? I mean, there's going to be some that are not going to make it. Obviously we're seeing already seeing, starting to see those 
maybe some of the newer ones that were more more less, less liquid that were more you know trying just getting their businesses going and still quite leveraged although the banks aren't calling the loans but they might just say they're already throwing in the towel um, but there are some that are going to come out of this really really well because this is going to build a resilience and they're just going to use this as a way because most great businesses are created in time of crisis so they're just, they're just going to get they're going to be propelled uh, by this, because they're going to just they're gonna be very proactive in the way that they decide to address the market. Yeah, and that's interesting what you said about you know some strong businesses being formed during a time of crisis, because uh, we've certainly seen you know direct to consumer retailers, uh, even brands that were you know started online, I guess digitally native is what you'd call it, uh, yeah. uh, coming to play in opening stores. You know, Frank and Oak in Canada, you know, Warby Parker, the eyewear retail United States, Casper has these uh, um, mm-hmm. showrooms, whatever you want to call it now. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, DNVB is uh, digital native vertical brands or, or digital native brands. And I mean, my concern around them, quite honestly, Craig, is, is a lot of them were, were really, um, uh, let's use it, the term doped up on venture capital. So I don't know how sustainable a lot of those uh, financially, a lot of those models are. They're great, great concepts. And they've, they've instigated so much change. Like a company like LensCrafters has had to really take a good hard look at itself since Warby Parker came in, for instance, and just the way where they, you know, the margins that they had, they were, they were getting were clearly not, not sustainable. Um, so there's a lot of good has come from the DNVBs and I hope, you know, I pray that a lot of them are going to make it through this, but I, I, I'm not, I don't think they're, they're sort of COVID proof either, you know, in the sense that they've, uh, that they have these such great brands and they're so amazing because we all look up to them, especially as an industry, they, they're so innovative. But, uh, you know, there's some more fundamentals behind that. And one of them, unfortunately, is they were so focused on customer acquisition and, and were marketing machines more than they were operational machines. So they, they, weren't, they never made a profit, you know. So they now in these times making a profit, especially the venture capital people are going to be a lot more strict around uh, their investments actually turning a profit more than they were in the past where they were like, just grow at all costs and don't worry about the bottom line. And do you think that uh, speaking about brands, uh, we talked a bit about a polarization. Do you think we're going to see a real shift towards, you know, big brands being the ones that survive and that people will gravitate to, or do you think there's still room for say the smaller retailer, the newer entrepreneur who, uh, you know, has recently say started a line and may not even have say a physical store. So they don't have that you yeah. know rent expense. Yeah, I mean, well, so I think the polarization is going to continue, but I think the so the big are going to get bigger, keep on getting bigger if this if that's even possible. But I still think also I was I was very bullish going in, you know, up to up into this for the little brands and the niche and the Queen Street and the Chabonet and the uh, the the sort of Rachel here or you know we have some we you know some we know where the sort of centers are in our respective communities where sort of the cool new brands would emerge from and, 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 and they, I mean, they were barely breaking even, right? I mean, to be honest, none of them were making millions of dollars. I mean, they were, but they were lifestyle uh, choices that these entrepreneurs were really passionate about what they're doing and they still are, you know, and they're still there. So back to my earlier point around leverage again, if they were able to do it in a way that wasn't so, they're not financially too, um, too much dire straits and they have landlords that are, you know, under, they're supporting them and they've been able to cut costs like crazy and, and find programs to keep their staff going. If, you know, financial programs or whatever that the government's been, suddenly see, you know, the government's really been stepping up here. I mean, I know the Diane and the team at the RCC have been working really hard to, to lobby on our behalf and get these, uh, these considerations. But I like, you know, I just hope that they're used for the right purposes too, uh, especially for the, 
especially for the small retailers, because I think that's, you know, that we underestimate the importance of that in our economy. And I hope they're going to go through. But unfortunately, I think they're also, you know, they're going to feel it just as much as anybody else. The ones that are in the most trouble, and we've already been a decade going through this, is sort of the average ones. Everything that's in the middle, you know, we've been talking for years and years about the death of the middle. And, and though, I mean, whatever's left of that is clearly going to get wiped out in this in terms of not middle, in terms of profitability, middle in terms of their offering. If they're just an average retailer that are there because they've always been there and that's their only real reason for being, you know, for being in business, then unfortunately, I think they're going to have a really, really hard time coming out of this. Yeah. I mean, I've been studying the history of retail a little bit and I've noticed that one of the constants in retail is change. Um, I know that, you know, people, you know, even before COVID-19, people were, you know, freaked out a bit about, you know, certain stores closing and whatnot. And I said, well, look at history. I remember, do you remember Eaton's? Do you remember Simpson's and, you know, Woodward's in Western Canada? I mean, retail has shifted, I think, consistently, you know, for the past, you know, 150 years that it's been fairly prominent in North America here. Yeah. We're still a young, uh, you know, uh, continent. <laughs> Yeah, well, young continent, HSBC, HS, sorry, HBC is one of the oldest, you know, uh, companies altogether in the Americas. And mm-hmm. look how many times it's pivoted, you know, from being a fur trader to now it's basically a real estate company, <laughs> to be honest. But um, it's, it's my concern. Uh, well, first of all, my, my, my mantra is the only constant is change. So I've, that's, my, that's my mindset. So what you said, I think it applies not just in retail, by the way, I think every industry right now is being, you know, is, is being shaken to its core, but retail, you have a point is being, uh, uh, till re, you know, till very recently, very much a self-fulfilling sort of industry where one goes and one, a new one comes in its place and it, it sort of, uh, it self-regulates and, or self-adjusts. And, and it, the, my concern, and we'll see how, where this goes with sort of this, this new, uh, wave of buy local and this new attention on sort of supporting our community that this crisis has brought is, uh, is that in the last, you know, 10 years, especially when one disappears, it tends not to be another local taking its place. It's either Amazon that's taking, you know, crazy market share or some other sort of uh, foreign, uh, large foreign concept that maybe, yes, employs people here. Uh, and that's great. And we, we like the jobs. Uh, maybe they pay taxes. Maybe they don't. You know, like it's it's they they have these these are large multinationals with very uh, uh, complex structured uh, uh, you know taxes tax avoidance uh, ways. So um, so that's what my concern has been a bit more. So when you talk about all those department stores as they left, look at the big the big retailers that come in and filled in their space. Most of them weren't Canadian, right? And I'm not trying to make this nationalist or anything like that. I'm just saying. We just need to be a little more sensitive to, to how, you know, hopefully coming out of this, how we spend our money. And, and we have this initiative here in Quebec called Panier Bleu, the Blue Basket, you know, that was launched a couple of weeks ago, like quick, quick turnaround. I think, you know, Alain, who's heading that up. Alain was, uh, was sort of our, our, our spokesperson for the RCC in Quebec for a while. Um, so Alain's leading that, that charge. So those are great things. And it's not, I mean, we're, it doesn't mean people are going to stop shopping on Amazon overnight or buying from, from H&M and Zara and all these, I mean, they're, you know, they're, that's, they're, they still have a place in the ecosystem, but it'd be nice to see it balance back out of it. Mm. Do you think, uh, I mean, fast fashion uh, was sort of, you know, Forever 21 had gone under, um, yeah. you know, we still have obviously, you know, Zara, which I well, you know, until recently and probably still is the largest apparel retailer in the world. H&M is really, really big too. Uh, do you see anything around the fast fashion, uh, you know, sector changing? <sighs> 
So, so I mean, even before this crisis, I was more and more focusing on what I'm going calling in the broadest terms possible, sustainable retail. Mm-hmm. And by sustainable, I meant really triple the, the triple bottom line narrative of not just the environmental, but social and economic. So obviously fast fashion had the economic piece worked out. There's, you know, they're very sustainable economically. Um, much more questionably on social, like how they treat their people and all that, some better than others. And then, but obviously environmentally, there's a lot of concern. And I don't say that, I don't think that's really what caused the demise of, of, of um, Forever 21. I think that would, that's a more complex story. I don't think it was just uh, people, you know, are shunning fast fashion because they feel the environmentally, it's not, uh, it's not uh, uh, um, productive, you know, it's not sustainable. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I think this crisis, you know, again, it's having a self-reflect a lot about where value is created, how, how did, you know, certain products get to us and, and why, and, and not why, but, you know, how more on the how and the impacts that has on, on, our, on the world. Because, you know, I think a lot of people are tying this crisis as well into broader environmental uh, uh, factors. So I, I, I hope anyways that there's going to be uh, a, sensitive, a heightened sense of sensitivity around, again, where, you know, where products come from and, and the impacts they have. That said... There's also the counter to that. All this is, you know, buying power is probably going to diminish considerably as we come into a recession, and and there's going to be some really hard economic impacts by all this. So, is that going to come back to favoring fast fashion because you know what fast fashion is above all is is really a, you know very uh, cost efficient. You know, so it it uh, it makes it so you know people that want to treat themselves to you know that 1999 dress. You know, it's going to be hard to convince them that they should spend a hundred dollars on the address that looks just the same because it's more comes from more sustainable growth. But again, probably another story of polarization where people are going to be that can afford it are going to be much more sensitive to it. I'm a big fan of uh, you know concepts like cotton out of Toronto that you guys have. Uh, Rami's team there is doing is fantastic. I hope I hope that those keep on growing because people that are have the money to to spend a hundred you know to spend on on a and still, it's not a luxury. It's an affordable, you know, it's an affordable luxury. It's not a, it's not a, a Chanel uh, sort of thing. It's, but hopefully people are going to put value into that. But I can appreciate that some economically just are not going to be able to, to do it. And they're going to say, listen, so it'll be an interesting one. But also, listen, Zara and, and H&M especially are, are even Uniqlo. I mean, they're all looking at new ways of doing this too. I think they, they realize that they're, they need to get ahead of this. So uh, they're diversifying. They're trying to find, you know, more uh, more and more. Uh, sustainable, um, you know, ways of, of doing their running their businesses because the runway is going to close right now. Uh, it's a it's a it's a it's a differentiator. You know, if you're a sustainable environmentally cotton is that makes you special. In ten years from now, I think, or five, maybe five years because of this acceleration, that's sort of going to be the, probably the baseline. You know, where that's where things are going to start from. So hopefully, these big companies are going to take that into consideration and accelerate those initiatives as well. And I should actually ask quickly about um, retail leadership, because I think that there's going to have to be a shift in thinking. Uh, I mean, uh, the, there's an acceleration of, you know, previous practices, you know, uh, within business. But uh, I think now, you know, flexibility, creative thinking, uh, looking to new things, um, that, that probably Absolutely. would make sense. Well, you know, I'll go, but could just even come back to the idea that Chocolat Favori, you know, Dominic Brown, who, who runs that organization, who purchased it, uh, I guess, seven or eight years ago already, came from the video game sector. Yeah. So he was used to that pace, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and having to constantly come up with new and exciting and, and, and engaging. 
So the idea that he quickly, you know, within two weeks had this curbside pickup system set up where they, you know, to, to drop the product, your product into your trunk, uh, contactless delivery. I mean, yeah, it was sort of just natural for him. I don't think he really, you know, for him, it wasn't a big deal because it was just, you know, he's, that innovation, that innovative mindset. So the leadership, to your point, is, is going to have to adapt to that. And there's going to be hopefully some longer horizon uh, thinking as well, too, which is something that I'm been looking at for a while too as, as we get away from just the pure transactional in the moment stuff and look out a bit broader and look at the bigger picture and uh, you know more holistically and, and again that's that could be a whole other podcast right there but it's uh, it's you know this this notion of what we're measuring uh, you know maybe we're not always measuring the right things. Thank you so much, Carl Boutet. He's the chief strategist of Studio RX, and uh, we've been talking today about uh, retail and COVID nineteen and how it's. Uh, facilitating an acceleration of change. Um, it isn't all bad news. Um, there's going to be some opportunities in the industry, uh, you know, but at the same time, we're in for some colossal change, which will, uh, you know, be taking place over the next few weeks and months and probably well uh, into the future as well. So thank you so much, Carl. Thanks, Frank.